Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to FX Moment, which is part of our FIC Focus podcast series. My name is Audrey Charles Freeman. I'm the Chief G10 FX Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And today I'm joined by Dan Hansen, who's a senior UK economist at Bloomberg Economics. Today we're talking UK and sterling. So let's start with sterling. Sterling has been year to date, date the strongest G10 FX performer. Uh, I, I, if you do a WCRS on the Bloomberg terminal, you see that the pound is up set nearly 10% versus the Norwegian krone. It's up nearly 5% the US dollar. It even outperformed the Swiss franc, which is my ultimate favorite currency this year, uh, and even the euro. So, you know, the, the performance has been very strong. And um, we just published a note early in the week to confirm that we still hold on to the bullish view on sterling, in particular on cable. We still believe that 130 to 135 are feasible levels uh, for this year. But as always, you know, you can't be too complacent and you look at what's been driving sterling higher and perhaps you, you know, sit back and say, what are the risks and where do we go from here? And this is where Dan comes into the equation today in, in our podcast in the sense that, you know, that strength in sterling was strongly, not only, but strongly driven by the UK economy not doing as badly as what we were fearing at the start of the year. And the positive surprises on the UK um, and arguably negative surprises on some of the other trading blocks uh, have helped the pound. So I guess the next question that we have, first of all, Dan, how can you explain this outperformance? And the second question is, can we expect this to last? Yeah, so, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, so in terms of why why is the UK done better? And I think there are a few reasons. Um, I think the first point in the sort of context here is that the UK certainly, certainly in October and November of last year, peak pessimism around the UK, like with the with what happened after the autumn statement with Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. There was a lot of doom and gloom around, around the UK economy, not helped by forecasts being put out by the Bank of England that were extremely bearish about the outlook. Um, but then you got to the turn of the year and a few things happened. So the first thing, and probably the most important thing, was there's been an enormous, or is that there's been an enormous fall in wholesale gas prices. So that means that this year energy bills aren't going to go up anywhere near as much as household energy bills and bills for businesses as well aren't going to go up anywhere near as much as uh, people were penciling into their forecast so that that real income squeeze that everyone talked about isn't going to be as intense as as was initially feared the second thing is and it's a much simpler point is that the data has just been much much stronger than people were expecting um the economy has held up. It doesn't look like it's going to go. The economy is going to go into recession in the near term. Um, so I think those two things have combined to 
to and we've we've upped our forecast for GDP this year, so we're expecting a 0.4% contraction for 2023. We now think the economy will eke out very, very modest growth of 0.1%. But that, if you remember, if you go back to, as I say, the point of peak pessimism in November time, you had the Bank of England and ourselves included looking at one, one and a half percent contraction in 2023. So that's an enormous swing in the outlook for the economy. Um, driven, as I say, partly by resilience um, in the data and partly by what we've seen in happening in wholesale energy markets. Your question about whether it will continue going forward is a, is a really good one, because what we haven't seen yet is the full impact of the Bank of England's actions. So we've seen some of the impacts, we haven't seen all of the impacts. So looking to the second half of this year and into 2024, we don't really see much of a pickup from where we are now in terms of growth. So we've got, at the moment, we're at best stagnating, maybe growing very slightly here in the UK. Um, we think that's that picture is going to continue for a very, very long time. Well, for at least for the next 18 months, I should say, as the Bank of England continues to lift what well, we think they're going to lift interest rates a little further, but keep interest rates high for a protracted period of time weighing on the economy. So you bring all of it together. And I think the outlook is one of very, very modest growth, but that is better than a recession that we were penciling in at the end of, or at the start of this year, at the end of last year. Um, the risk, of course, and we've seen what's been going on in the US, is that the Bank of England's action causes something to break, if you like, and you get what I would call a monetary policy-induced recession, that mm. the economy does get tipped into a downturn because uh, the bank goes too far. Uh, and, I, and I think that is the risk moving into the second half of the year, but also into 2024. Yeah, and I, I suppose thinking about which channel that could come through, what comes to mind is the housing sector for the UK, because we've already seen a weakening in the housing sector. But yet again, earlier this week, we had data coming out of the UK housing sector, which was actually okay, back into positive. I know it's just a one month, yep, uh, but it's a nice relief. And, and from my macro perspective, uh, the, the one thing that comes to mind is what happened with the housing sector. Uh, and certainly as a, as a forward looking indicator, uh, you know, on the extent to which, you know, we could have this downside risk uh, unfolding in the in the second half of this year and probably more into next year as well. Yeah, and I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the rate housing is obviously a very rate sensitive sector. So you look to housing, not only in terms of assessing people's confidence about the future and people's confidence to go out and spend money, because it's almost everyone's largest asset. So as long as that's going up in value, people feel confident, even though they're not realizing the gains because they're not selling the house and moving on, they feel confident that in their in their, um, in their financial situation. But I think in terms of the current context, it's also very important to watch a housing market because it is a rate-sensitive sector. It is one of the first sectors that will get impacted as rates go up. And so it is very interesting what happened earlier this week. Um, and again, is another sign of resilience. I think, I've, I think you know, I think our, our broader view is that you know, price house prices will continue to fall over the longer term. There is a sort of structural adjustment that needs to take place from a world where you had interest rates at, you know, zero point one percent when all of this started, to a world where we're going to have interest rates at four, maybe five percent, or somewhere in between. 
Um, so an adjustment needs to take place. Um, and it, there is evidence because of the falls that we have seen to date um, that rates probably have moved above neutral and are in restrictive territory. So that's a signal to the Bank of England that their, their policy action is beginning to bite and it will take time for it to feed through, as I say. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's definitely something to watch, particularly for the UK, in terms of how things might evolve in the second half. But you're, and I, I think you're absolutely right as well about 2024. I think I think it, it's easy to forget that the lags in the monetary policy transmission mechanism mean that 2024 is probably when the peak pain is going to arrive. Not necessarily in terms of growth, but how much the economy is being suppressed by the tight stance of monetary policy, and obviously that questions then about how how long it how long rates stay that high and how quickly the bank flips towards thinking about cutting rates as well yeah and I, I suppose related to that you know trying to assess especially in in currencies and when it comes to currency pairs trying to assess which economies uh, are adjusting easier and faster to the the new world of higher interest rate for longer uh, and, and that's very difficult to say, I suppose, at, at this point. Uh, and it's this difficult to say where, where the UK stands on, on that front. But just um, related to these uh, debates, can you just briefly tell us, and I think I, I, I get a flavour, but can you tell us what you're expecting, uh, where do you expect UK rates to peak uh, versus the market consensus? And what are the risks you think for to the forecast that you have on UK rates? Yeah, so uh, we we refreshed our rates forecast following um, the two data releases, the labor market release and the CPI release um, in April, both of which came in much hotter than we and I think nearly all economists were expecting. So we think rates are now going to go to 4.75%. They're currently at 4.25%. So that means we think there'll be a rate hike at the May meeting, which is on the 11th of May, and one at the one at the June meeting as well. Um, now that's a little bit below market expectations. Um, market expectations are sort of somewhere between 4.75 and 5%. They've come off a little bit um, in recent days, but 5% near enough. Um, so a little bit below that, I think a little bit above the current consensus of economists, which I think is for a final hike at the May meeting and then going on pause. Um, going on a, well, a protracted pause, I should say. Um, what are the risks? I think the risk is they go above where we where we think they're going to go. Um, I think we were quite we were quite confident. We had a call for four point two five percent and for the bank to pause in May, but that was conditioned on um, inflation beginning to show signs of easing, um, and it did fall. Uh, don't forget in March, but just not anywhere near by as much as people were expecting. But also, and I think this was the bigger surprise, was the momentum in wage growth hasn't eased anywhere near as quickly as we were expecting. And ultimately, that needs to, if you're going to have any chance of getting back to 2%, wage growth needs to slow down significantly from even where it is now. So I think the risk going into the second half of this year for the bank is that rates do go higher and the market market expectation is sort of broadly vindicated and they, they hike again in August um, because the data, basically because inflation just proves to be more persistent than anyone um, is anticipating. Um, 
so I, th I think that's where the where the balance of risks lie. Um, and then beyond that, we think it's going to take a bit of time for them to think about cuts, just because it's going to take time for inflation to come down. We think inflation might end the year a touch below 4% headline inflation. But core inflation, we think, is probably going to be close to 5 which is obviously way too high. Um, and it, it, cuts aren't going to start, we don't think, at least until 2024. I guess, just I don't want to contradict myself, but I think in that second half of the year and moving into 2024, I think the balance of risk will probably shift around because the higher you leave, the longer you leave rates at that high level, the greater the chance that this idea of breaking something comes to the fore. And I think, you know, it's, it's um, quite possible at that point that something happens that they'll need to reverse course and they'll definitely be watching the Fed as well. So yeah. if you think the Fed, if you think the Fed is going to start cutting in the second half of this year, um, they'll be watching that pretty closely because inflation, the inflation process in the US is is a little bit more advanced than the UK and in Europe. Um, so what happens there happens here sort of three to six months later in this, yeah. in this current episode. Yeah, so. uh, it's quite ironic because I, I actually think that um, if the Bank of England underwhelms in terms of how much they deliver versus what the market is currently pricing, um, it would be a better outcome for sterling to the extent that, you know, to the point you're making, um, it, it probably means a little bit less aggressive monetary tightening helps the growth picture longer term uh, and then that's actually i think as growth start to drive more effects than rates mm -hmm. i think that becomes uh more supportive for sterling or adds onto the bullish story that uh, we've been embracing over the past over over the past few months so yeah let, let's keep let's keep an eye it's very difficult to say but uh, uh, I actually think that less aggressive Bank of England, you know, whether we pick at four seven five five or five and a quarter, I don't. I, I think from from a medium term uh, sterling outlook perspective is actually better than more aggressive for longer. Even though you get higher yields, but if it means at the cost of lower growth, increasing the recession risk, it, it's it's actually not. That good for yeah. I mean, I know I, I completely agree with you because I think now, and it goes back to the answer to the first question, the biggest risk to the outlook now is monetary policy and the impact monetary policy is going to have. And the fact is, none of the central banks really understand it. We don't understand it. And they are flying blind at the moment. And we've had some hints of it from the US with the, the regional banks of what, what might happen. Um, but we don't know for sure, and I think I think that is I think that is very a very important thing to watch, as you say, going into the second half of the year. And it is the bis big risk, I should say, to our to our growth outlook is that monetary policy just has a far greater impact. And it's not just the level of rates; it's the speed at which they've got there that gets you this this bad outcome. And that's mm. the thing we're we're definitely watching, um, certainly in the second half of this year, and that moving into twenty four as well. Okay, so we talked about the very much the, the cyclical element and the cyclical prospect, which, by the way, are the prime drivers for currencies at the moment and will most continue to be so. Uh, but I also would like to touch on the structural drivers. And certainly in the UK cases, you know, the structural 
and the fiscal position last year uh, and were strong drivers to, to, the, to the really dreadful time that Sterling had uh, in, in Q4 last year. Um, and thankfully, fiscal credibility has been restored now and this fiscal premium, which we all hated, uh, has, been, has been removed. Uh, but I would still like to get your opinion on the, the outlook for the fiscal, for the UK fiscal policy, um, uh, current to current position, mm -hmm. and any kind of driver which you feel is relevant uh, and worth a mention um, for, for the longer term, in particular for the UK economy. The other thing I would like to touch on is productivity and, you know, where do we stand on, on the efforts to improve our productivity levels in the UK? Yeah, so I mean, it might be worth starting with that because it certainly links to the fiscal, like how I sort of view the fiscal position and what needs to be done there. So it's very well known that UK productivity growth has been absolutely dreadful since the financial crisis. Um, when you compare it to the period uh, prior to the financial crisis, where productivity growth averaged two, two and a half percent, or somewhere in between there. So since then, it's averaged. In terms of outturns, between a half and one percent. So, and our forecast uh, for productivity and for potential GDP, of which productivity is one element, labour supply is the other element, but productivity is the biggest driver. We think productivity growth um, in the long term in the UK is going to be about one percent a year. Trend growth of about one point two percent. Now, how does our forecast compare to to others? So the OBR thinks trend growth is, so that's the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is the UK's fiscal watchdog, um, uh, thinks trend growth is between 1.7 and 1.8%, so 1.75%, so we're quite a bit below that, but we're quite a bit above the Bank of England, who thinks trend growth is about 0.7%, so extremely weak by any, any historical metric. The productivity story is a big story. Um, and then a very important story. There's been a lot of discussion of labour supply in the UK and this fall in participation we've seen as workers have exited the workforce. Um, and that's, of course, a, a broader supply issue as well. But actually, for me, the productivity issue just hasn't gone away. And ultimately, if you want a sustained rise in living standards in any economy, productivity growth is the route to that. And in the UK, it just... It just hasn't happened and there aren't any signs that it's about to change anytime anytime soon i mean one obviously one thing it, it, it's worth mentioning um though i don't i don't think it's the only driver but it, it is a uk specific driver of course is what's going on with brexit and the way we've transitioned to this new trading relationship with the, the eu that we think has been a drag and will continue to be a drag on the uk economy we think the economy might be about, these are obviously estimates from, from models, but 4 to 5% smaller by 2030 than it otherwise would have been, ultimately. As um, a result of as a, res, as a result of this trading relationship that we're in now, relative yeah. to a world where we, the UK would have stayed yeah. in the single market. So that's, you know, that's a lot. That's a sort of 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5, even 0. 0.6 on growth every year, if you sort of add it up all yeah. the way to 2030. So that's, that's a lot. Um, and get you actually closer to the OBR's number for trend growth. But I think it, it remains the case that productivity 
Um, the productivity story in the UK is a puzzle, but it's also the biggest, by far the biggest, I think, policy challenge for governments. And that sort of links to um, the fiscal question, because if we look at the March budget and all the projections for the fiscal outlook in there, the government is, is doing an awful lot of fiscal consolidation, austerity, fiscal consolidation, tightening fiscal policy to get debt falling. You know, the primary balance is going to move from a 2% deficit to a 1% surplus over the next five years. So 3% of GDP consolidation, give or take, which is an enormous amount of money to be taking out of the economy at a time when interest rates are rising. It's another headwind. You know, we've spoken about rates and real income squeezes, but fiscal policy is this prolonged squeeze is coming. But I think the challenge actually for fiscal policy may actually be greater than even the, the OBR think, because going back to what we were saying about productivity, if the economy doesn't grow as much as the OBR thinks, tax receipts won't grow as much. So to balance the books and close the gap between spending and tax, you're going to have to do something on the policy front. Now, is that cut spending? Is that raise taxes? Well, that's a, that's a question for the political party of, of the day. But I think there is a significant challenge in the UK of getting the deficit down and getting debt on a downward trajectory is extremely difficult because the, the debt dynamics, and it's not just the UK, mm. the debt dynamics of every economy have changed enormously over the past 12 months. And it's not something that has been, I think, really fully digested about how different the world is now relative to, say, if we had this conversation in September 2021. Because we've got very weak nominal growth, we've got very high yields, that's why you need to do so much on the fiscal balance to get debt as a share of GDP onto a on a downward trajectory. It's very, very difficult to do that. So it's not just, as I say, it's not just the UK. And if you're thinking in an FX space of relative performance on these things, I don't think it, the UK is certainly not a out on its own with this. Yeah, certainly not. So, I mean, look at the at the US debt fiscal exactly. problem and exactly. look at Europe as well. You know, you know, Italy predicament is still lingering around. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, but in terms of, I mean, if you're thinking about it in terms of, I know we're not talking about um, fixed income, but in the world of there's in the fixed income world, there's going to be an enormous amount of issuance going on in years to come at a time when central banks are doing QT as well. Yeah. So the sort of high yield world, just thinking in sort of fiscal space and you think about government debt, forgetting what central banks are doing, there is that there is that world that's going on as well. And I think it's been less central banks have been the driver over the past 18 months. But that that trend is going to be a, a very long run trend that is going to have to be digested through time. And I don't think it's been digested yet at all. So I think, yeah, that's that's sort of just a sort of flavor at least of some of the longer term challenges the UK faces they aren't um, they aren't easily fixed and they're, they're quite daunting but they're they're, they're definitely there and um, yeah they're, they're, they're ones to watch sort of beyond as you say the sort of cyclical period of the next next 18 months or so yeah I mean from a from an FX perspective I guess the, the question is um, well there's two there's two points the first point is as you say the UK is not alone and and that's why you know now it's not it's not a driver anymore for 
for from that perspective if anything i think there's more attention being put in place on on the imminent fiscal problem that the us is facing with the debt limit um and and for for europe uh, I think you know the, the, the debt situation for, for for some of the countries, in particular Italy, um, are probably going to, from a market perspective anyway. I think in the near term, are more likely to 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 generate some some scrutiny and and, and concern. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that's absolutely right. And the fact is, the UK had its scare in October and November. The government has very clearly. Um, taking steps to address it. So the, the UK appears at least from the outside to have wised up to the fact that this thing is a problem. It's put a plan in place. A lot of economies haven't done that yet. If you, exactly. look, at, if you look at the fiscal plans of some economies, they are just not consistent at all yeah. with a falling debt burden. So I think from that perspective, the UK sort of got a big tick yeah. by its name. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there it is it is a challenge to get to get debt falling and but you know, it's not a UK specific issue. Yeah, so, uh, you know, at the moment, uh, the, the, the structural story uh, for me is there, but it's not a, a key driver and it's not enough to to kind of move away from the more bullish outlook that, you know, I have on Sterling. So, you know, for cable, we're still thinking, um, as I said in, in our introduction, still thinking 130 to 135, I mean, timing is always difficult, with, but that's kind of uh, what what I, I see. Uh, and in terms of level, I think that 135 is still about 50% below the 20-year moving average on cable. Um, you know, it's so 20-year uh, moving average is, um, is about 155, 156. And 125, which is the, the level where we're currently trading, um, is about 17% uh, below the pre-Brexit level in 2016. Um, so again, you know, if you feel that sterling has recovered enormously from mm. from the, the level we had last year, but um, I think there's room for substantial more upside. Uh, I think there's international appetite to get back into, into the UK um, bit by bit. Confidence is being restored. I think, you know, the fact that um, the, the, under the leadership of Rishi Sunak, the relation with the EU have improved. Uh, that's helping confidence as well. Um, and, and I suppose the last point and the last question uh, I would ask you is, you know, we have elections coming up in the yep. UK next year. Uh, most opinion poll continue to show the Labour government uh, most likely outcome, even though in politics you never know. But what would, um, from what you read and the plans that are being proposed from the Labour, do you think um, the Labour government would have a significant impact in your growth prediction for the UK uh, and for the interest rate outlook? Um, so from what I can sort of glean from what I've heard, I don't think there would be a massive difference in um, what we would expect from the economy. I think, I mean, I think a broad, a broad point and the broad um, setting for the economic policies and fiscal policies that will go into the next election, the backdrop will still be what happened in October and November. And both parties will be so sensitive to the idea that if they say or set out a policy plan that looks completely unsustainable, 
they know they're going to get punished. There's been first-hand experience of that. So I think Labour are very, very keen to come across as just as economically sensible, economically viable as the Tories. They don't want to give the Tories the ability to hit them with the stick of being, oh, you're just going to spend frivolously, you're just going to spend all this money, and there's going to be no fiscal responsibility. So I think both parties will aim to get, continue to aim, aim to get debt on a debt as a share of GDP, I should say, on a downward trajectory. One slight difference between Labour and the Tories is that um, Labour seem to be uh, moving towards or sort of angling towards doing more on the investment front. Um, but at, so in the sort of parlance, it means that they'll run it, the Labour will still look to balance the day-to-day spending and taxes, but they'll allow investment spending to rise a little bit further. And that's to do with green commitments and the, that that agenda. Um, so I think, but spending on that sort of spending is very unlikely to be a sort of punishable offence by the market. You know, investment spending is always going to have some rate of return on it, as long as it's, the projects are sensible. Um, it will boost the economy, it will boost demand in the economy, but it'll also boost supply in the economy as well. So that's that's a positive. Um, so maybe we'd have to look at it in a little bit more detail, but maybe there'd be a little bit more upside there, just in terms of growth in the near term, if there was a bit more investment spending coming from Labour, um, and possibly further out there would be a little bit slightly higher trend growth not very much but a little bit um but i think broad picture to to answer your question directly i wouldn't be expecting to make huge changes to the growth and rate forecast um basically as i say it's at the start it goes back to what happens at the end of 2022 and i think there is this big fear about um doing something that spooks markets. The UK still has, there is still a job to be done to get the fiscal position onto a sustainable path. It's not going to be completed in the next year. It's going to take a number of years. So whoever is in power, um, be it at the end of next year, be it in early 2025, whenever the election is, they still have a job to do to deliver fiscal sustainability. So there's a lot of that still to come. And then worrying about investment and things like that might come a little bit later. So in terms of a 18 month, even two year horizon, there's very little to um, difference between the two, two outcomes. It's certainly nothing like Boris Johnson versus Jeremy Corbyn, where it was just poles apart. The the parties have come to this, this appear to at least have come to this sort of, at least around economic and fiscal policy, this sense of ground. Yeah. So hopefully no more, Nasty accident for Sterling. Well, I, well, I hope. Yeah, I hope not. I, I, I'm not sure I can live with the stress of another episode. Like <laughs> yeah, <that>. likewise, <laughs> likewise. Dan, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for sharing your expertise on the UK economy, which is very relevant. I certainly always use your your macro outlook on, on the UK, which has always proven very, uh, very, and very often very accurate. So, thank, thank you, you for that. And you can you can find um, Dan's research on Bloomberg Economics Go on the terminal. You can find our FX research on the BI Curve page on, on the dashboard on the, on the Bloomberg terminal. I hope you found uh, our FX Moments latest podcast interesting. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.